I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our final tower. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. On today's episode, we are talking about Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc is a name that many people have heard and a lot of people don't know that much about. It's an amazing and frankly miraculous story. One of the most improbable stories of all time is what I think. As I have read in history, I have never heard a story like this of someone who should have been nowhere near the levers of power. She was a a French girl. She was a peasant girl from the middle of nowhere, and she eventually rises to, she calls herself the chef de guerre, the, uh, the essentially like the commander in chief, the leader of the armed forces, and completely turns the tide of a war. It's an incredible story about persistence, about vision. It's a story that forces us to reckon with the divine, I think, which is really interesting. Uh, it's the story of a great woman and the difficulties and the contradictions that that entailed in medieval Europe. It is both a great war drama, and at the same time, it's a shockingly small and personal story about a 16-year-old girl and her convictions and beliefs. And I also think it's a masterclass on how to motivate others and how to inspire them in a cause. I have loved learning about this story, and I think you'll love it too. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to L. Lee May, who convinced me that this was a story worth telling and helped me with the research and writing on this episode. She's great. You can find her on Twitter at L underscore Lee May. I've linked her Twitter profile in the show notes. So go give her a follow and let's do it. Let's dive in to the story of Joan of Arc after this word from our sponsors. For anyone trying to accomplish great things, there is nothing more important than focus. There's a great story of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett meeting together. And someone asks, what was the most important attribute for your success? And they write down their answers and they have both written down the same word focus. And for founders, one of the most common things that breaks people's focus is fundraising. You're worried about raising money, and now you're not as focused as you should be on creating an insanely great product. And that's why I'm excited to partner with today's sponsor, Capitally. They're on a mission to help founders raise money insanely fast. They have a network of investors, both angels and VCs, and a platform that connects founders to them easily and seamlessly. Some founders are able to start taking meetings in less than 24 hours and secure soft commitments for funding in less than 30 days. Capitaly is the go-to place when it comes to raising capital for startup founders from pre-seed all the way to series A and B. So if you're a founder who needs to raise money, go to capitaly.vc, book your consulting session and have a chat with the team. And while you're there, let them know that I sent you. Again, that is capitaly, that's capital and then the letter Y at the end, capitaly.vc. I'd like to start out by giving some context on the times that Joan of Arc lived in and the war in which she became a player. I think unless you understand the broader conflict, it's difficult to understand how strange uh, it was that this this girl kind of appears in the middle of this war and and does what she does. So let's start off with the basics. England had been trying to invade France for a long time. And that might seem funny because our story will, will take place in the early 1400s. And at the time... England was a country of about 2 million people, and France was a country of about 20 million. And so it seems backwards that this country that's a tenth of the size is trying to invade this this much larger country. 
but there had been a long-standing claim of the English kings to the French throne. And that was because uh, the two royal families intermarried quite frequently, and also because uh, England was sort of economically ascendant at this time. There were, there were some larger forces that led them to punch above their weight, you could say, to be more powerful than they should have been given the raw manpower that was available to them. And then in the very early 1400s, uh, something happens that destabilizes France a little bit. There's this guy, King Charles, King Charles VI, and he ascends to the throne. His father dies early. So he's only 11 years old. And so what happens is the French kingdom starts to be pulled apart by uh, his uncles, by these dukes. So you can think of dukes as like governors, right? They're below the king. They control large amounts of territory, um, but not the entire kingdom. And so they start to empty the coffers of France, start to take power for themselves. And so Charles grows up in troubled times and grows up with a lot of stresses, a lot of people fighting over him and, uh, and surrounded by a lot of violence and instability. And perhaps because of a consequence of that, uh, Charles VI goes crazy. And I mean crazy, crazy. So there are a number of incidents. Uh, in one, he thinks he's made of glass. And so he tries to have a contraption made for him with iron bars to help hold him together so that he won't accidentally shatter. In another, he claims to not know his family. He, he looks at his wife and says, who is this? In another, he, he starts to believe that everyone around him is uh, is plotting to kill him. And so he goes on a killing spree. He, he kills five people before he is restrained. Five people in his court who are kind of part of his retinue and, and around him. And so... Um, that leads to some instability as well because he is not fit to rule. And what that means is that there are other people in the court who are vying to kind of be the power behind the king, right? They're vying to be the person who really controls the kingdom of France. For whatever reason, this guy, Charles, again, this is Charles VI, he is known as uh, Charles the Bien-Aimé, Charles the Well-Beloved. Apparently he was a very nice and agreeable guy. People loved him when he was lucid. I don't know that even when he was lucid, he was a great leader, but he was very likable. He was, he was well-liked, if, if not necessarily well-respected. But that's not the only nickname he had, the well-beloved. He's also known as Charles the Mad, unsurprisingly. Now, I mentioned some of these divisions. There are two main camps, Orleans and Burgundy, okay? And these are two of the more powerful regions in France. And so it's complicated. I won't get into all of it, but, you know... The people from the Orleans, the, the, the Orleans family, I guess you could call them, are marrying into the royal family and trying to take certain positions and trying to control France. And the people from the Burgundy family are doing the same. And at first, there are kind of rules in terms of how far people can take things. Uh, but then the Duke of Burgundy kind of breaks the rules. And so one night, Louis of Orleans, the Duke of Orleans, uh, so the, the head of this Orleans family, I guess you could say, uh, is walking through Paris one night and some bandits come out of the shadows and club him to death. Really gruesome and really brutally. I think they they strike so hard at one point his his left hand or left arm is nearly taken off. And it's very obvious to everyone that these were not just some random bandits. These were men sent by the Duke of Burgundy to do his dirty work. And so this basically spills over into civil war. At first, it's kind of a cold civil war. It's just minor skirmishes, uh, but it moves more and more towards an actual real civil war. And so the King of England, whose name is Henry V, takes a look at this and says, okay, there are serious divisions within France. Now is a good time to take advantage and press my claim to be the King of France. And so in 1415, he sails from England to Normandy. 
which is a region in northern France, and starts by besieging a city called Harfleur. They are successful, eventually, and take the city of Harfleur, but it takes much longer than it should have. And in the meantime, the siege is not done particularly well. They dam a river, and it floods, and it causes a lot of disease and dysentery in the English camp. So yes, they take their immediate goal, which is the city of Harfleur, but it basically takes the entire summer, the entire campaign season, and at the end of it, half their troops aren't able to to fight anymore because they, they all have dysentery. But King Henry can't really just take this one city and turn around and go back to England with his tail between his legs, so he decides that he is going to march through Normandy to the city of Calais, which is at the time English controlled. And so that will prove, look, I can march my troops through France, through Normandy. I'm really in control here, uh, even though he wasn't. It's kind of a foolhardy decision. And as he's doing this march through Normandy, the French troops show up and the uh, the camps of Orleans and Burgundy have put aside their differences and they've all come together to form this joint French army to attack the English who were in their territory. And they catch up to the English army near a town called Agincourt. And this is one of the most famous battles of all time. The English essentially have no knights. They're outnumbered at least two to one. The numbers are a little disputed. They are cut off from all their supplies. There's just, they have no chance, right? Yet they win somewhat miraculously. I would love to break it down some other time. Maybe I'll do an episode on Henry V. But this lends some credence people to start to say, oh, wow, maybe this Henry V guy, you know, is really destined to be that guy, destined to be the, the king of France. And he's able to lead his troops to Calais and go back to England. Now, it was kind of such a debacle that he had to take a few years off from this invasion of France and kind of regroup and raise more troops. And in the meantime, while Henry is gone, the civil war between the Burgundians and uh, and the guys from Orleans resumes. Um, the actual the side from Orleans comes to be known as the Armagnacs after a, a count who's who's with them and ends up kind of being important in in all of it. So th- that's the important thing to know is that we're in France. There's kind of this threat looming of England, and there's the Armagnacs and the Burgundians. So when Henry V returns to France, he doesn't have any trouble landing and getting his troops established. Uh, One chronicler wrote, quote, No one did anything about it because all the French lords were angry with each other, because the prince was at odds with his father on account of the Duke of Burgundy, who was with the king. Okay, so that's the basic balance of power. The king, King Charles the Mad, was with the Burgundians. His son, the prince, who's called the Dauphin, was with the Armagnacs, and now King Henry is in uh, is in France as well. And so for a time, there are these shifting alliances. So anytime someone starts to get too much power, then the other two sides will sign a truce and start to work with each other. And it's interesting because, you know, there's this propaganda, especially the French really hate each other, these Burgundians and these Armagnacs, because it's a civil war, right? They can't believe they have betrayed one another. Uh, at one point, the Armagnac propaganda calls John, the Duke of Burgundy, quote, the dearest and well-beloved lieutenant of Lucifer, king of hell. And then like weeks later, they sign a truce with him, right? So it's, they can vacillate very quickly between, okay, we're working with you and you are literally the most well-beloved lieutenant of Lucifer, the devil. Well, finally, the English are getting too powerful. Henry V was an amazing leader and a powerful military commander. And so he's making some real headway. And so the Armagnacs and the Burgundians can see, okay, we need to set aside our differences and team up for the good of France and defeat the English. So they come together for a peace agreement 
They start to hammer it out. The only thing that's left is to really seal it, to do the handshake, right? And say, okay, we're doing this. So they set up a handshake deal. It's a very complicated affair because everyone is sort of scared of assassination. And so the Dauphin, who is, again, that's the French word they use to mean prince. It means he's the heir to the throne. So the Dauphin at this time is still just a boy. And again, you have these kind of pawns, right? So the king, King Charles the Mad, is with the Burgundians, but he's not making any decisions. He's essentially like their mascot. They keep him around as a form of legitimacy. Look, the king is with us, but the king's not making any decisions. Similarly, the prince, the Dauphin, is with the Armagnacs, but he's also not really making any decisions at this point. He's just a boy. He's doing whatever they tell him, but he's a sign of legitimacy. Look, we have the, the heir to the throne. The future of France is with us. And so the Dauphin, who is a young man, is supposed to meet with uh, John, the Duke of Burgundy. And they have it all set out that they're going to cross a bridge, meet in the middle of the bridge. You have 10 men stand here. I have 10 men stand here. And they kind of do it on, uh, they do it on Armagnac territory. So the Dauphin is really the one who's in charge. And so they do this. They all come together. There's a handshake deal. And in order to kind of seal it, the Duke of Burgundy kneels down before the Dauphin. And as he does so, one of uh, the Armagnacs, one of the Dauphin's men, takes up his axe and caves in the Duke of Burgundy's head, kills him with his axe. And then people swarm him and start stabbing him for good measure. And so this was payback uh, because this is the same guy, the Duke of Burgundy, who had previously killed the Duke of Orleans had had those people in, in Paris come and, and hack at him with clubs and, and, and kill him. And so they're paying him back, right? This is very Game of Thrones type stuff. But in some ways, this killing was worse than uh, than what John, the Duke of Burgundy, had done previously because, you know, you can think of it like a mob hit, right? There's such a thing as a fair mob hit, what, what's okay to do and what's not okay to do. And what's okay to do is get a guy when he's in the street. But what's not okay to do is take someone in your protection, lie to them, say, it's okay, we're going to make a deal, and then under those auspices, have him killed. There, there were sort of expectations and customs around hospitality, and breaking those was a big no-no. And so the Burgundians are very, very upset after uh, after this assassination. They already would have been upset after an assassination, but this seems particularly gross and egregious and evil. And so the Burgundians are like, forget it. We're going with the English. And so we've got the Armagnacs on one side, who include really most of France. And then we've got Burgundy, which is a smaller part of France, but honestly, some of the most prosperous um some of the richest parts of France, and they're teamed up with the English, and these two sides are about to start fighting. The Burgundians and the English come together, and they have Henry V, who's the king of England, marry a, a princess, the daughter of Charles the Mad. And so this brings a lot of legitimacy, because if, if Henry is able to have a son with this woman, that makes him obviously the king of England, but also have a really, really strong claim to France as well, even stronger than Henry V had. So they've got a strong claim and they've got an amazing leader in Henry V as well. He's great on the battlefield, great in the throne room, you know, five tool player, as they say in the NFL, the guy can do everything. I, uh, I, I could do an episode on, on Henry V. I, I probably will. Shakespeare already did. And, and the English and Burgundians are winning as long as he's around. He does leave and go back to England for a while. He leaves his brother Thomas in charge. Thomas really messes things up and he charges into the fray, immediately gets himself killed and loses a major battle. So Henry V has to come back. And when he comes back now, he's got a son. Uh, he, he was able to, to father a son with this princess of France. 
And so this kid is like the most anticipated child of all time in Western Europe. They call him Henry the sixth. And this kid has more claims in England and France than anyone has ever had. He's born into more power than, than a person ever has been. And it seems clear to me that if things had gone on like this, Henry V is going to keep winning battles. He's going to make quick work of the Armagnacs. All the momentum is with him. And he's going to be the king of England and France. And he's going to leave those thrones to his son. They would have won. But he dies of dysentery. This is one of these sliding doors moments. But now things get more complicated. Because again, the next king is just an infant. So whereas before you had the Armagnacs who are really divided. They don't have a, a great leader because, you know, their king is, uh, is just a young man and can't lead yet. And you have the English and the Burgundians who are led by King Henry V, this really strong leader. Now, the English and the Burgundians are led by committee as well, and so also don't have as strong of leadership. And so the, it seems like the Armagnacs have a little bit more of a chance now. But in the immediate wake of the death of Henry V, his brother, who's called the Duke of Bedford, takes over as, uh, as the head guy of England in France. And he's not as flashy, he's not as spectacular as his brother Henry, but the Duke of Bedford is the ultimate get-the-job-done guy. He's just very, very competent. So he takes charge of the forces. He leads them at a battle with the Armagnacs called the Battle of Vernouille. And once again, the French outnumber the English, should win, and they lose spectacularly. And so now they've got like half the country under, under their rule. They actually take Paris, which is symbolically very important because it's the capital and, and the heart of France. And they're winning. They're pushing further and further south. And the English are going to take control of basically all of the heartland, the main parts of France. And to add to that, they're already losing. And now there starts to be some infighting, some, some civil wars within the Armagnac side. So it's going really, really poorly. The English move in and besiege the city of Orleans. And that's important because the thing that was still holding them back from fully being able to take over all of France was this river, the Loire River. And so the, the Armagnacs could still hold the English back uh, along the Loire because it's difficult to cross. But Orleans is one of these cities that sits right on the Loire. And so if they can take it, that is a crossing that's going to put them right in the middle of, of the Armagnac territory. Since they didn't control Paris anymore, the Dauphin had moved his capital to a city called Bourges, and it's a pretty straight shot from Orleans to Borges. So they're going to be in, in big, big trouble if England is able to take the city of Orleans. There is a Armagnac commander named the Bastard of Orleans. So his brother, or his half-brother, I should say, was actually the Duke of Orleans. But he had been captured by the English back at the Battle of Agincourt. And so he was still being held prisoner now like a decade later in England. So the Bastard of Orleans... Um, takes some French troops and tries to relieve the siege uh, on his home city, uh, uh, the city of Orleans. And they attack and the archers take out all these knights. The bastard of Orleans is injured in the foot. Uh, many French knights are either killed or captured. And so the bastard of Orleans has to literally and figuratively limp back and say, uh, I, I failed to relieve the siege. And so it looks like it's only a matter of time until Orleans is going to be taken. That is the gateway to Armagnac territory. Armagnacs have a bunch of infighting still. There's not good relations between their own forces. They're really on their heels. It looks like the English are just one strong campaign from taking it all. 
these Armagnac pretenders, people are calling them the kingdom of Borges, which is supposed to be an insult, right? Because their capital isn't even in Paris. It's in this other city. So this kingdom of Borges looks like it'll fall with the faintest push. And then 11 days later, a peasant girl named Joan walks into the court of the Dauphin, Charles VII, and she changes everything. And I'll be telling you the rest of her story after this quick break to hear from another one of our sponsors. Have you ever gone into a restaurant and you thought, nice, I only spent $25 on that meal and then the bill comes back and then you add in the drink and the tax and the appetizer and you actually spent like $55 and you think, how did that happen? Well, guess what? It sucks when that happens at a restaurant. It sucks way worse when that happens when you're selling a house because those are tens of thousands of dollars you're losing and it's really, really painful. I just bought a house and so I have experienced something like this firsthand in the very recent past. That's why you have to use Clever. It's the smartest way to start your home sale. They have negotiated insider rates with over 19,000 top realtors from all the major brands like Keller Williams, Compass, and Remax. And when you're ready to sell your home, they'll help you compare top local realtors in your area and pay just 1.5% to your listing agent, half the typical fee. The average Clever customer saves more than $9,000. I wish I had an extra $9,000. I'd buy a sauna to put in my backyard to go next to my cold plunge. Clever has tons of information on their website to help you navigate the selling process. So be smart. If you're selling your house, go to listwithclever.com and save yourself 10 grand. I know I will. Again, that is listwithclever.com or just check the link in the show notes. Joan had no last name. Now we know her as Joan of Arc, but at the time she was just Joan. She was from a small remote village called Domremy in the very far northeast of France. She was a peasant girl. All her family were peasants. She had a very normal upbringing. She sews, she spins wool, she cares for goats. She's very religious. And at age 12, she hears a voice. She thinks it comes from behind her. She looks around, she doesn't see anyone. And the voice begins to speak to her and to tell her things, things that she should do. Eventually, this voice becomes two voices and then three voices. The voices identify themselves. They are that of St. Michael, St. Catherine, and St. Margaret, saints that she was familiar with and were important in the Catholic canon. They tell her to do things, never evil or bad things. The things that they tell her to do are simple. The things that you would expect a young girl to do. She's to listen to her mother. She's to always pray. She's to obey the commandments that she learns in church. And so that's what she does. But eventually their instructions change and they give her this plan of what she needs to do. She is going to end this war. She's going to eject the English from France and restore the Dauphin, the prince to the throne of France. And here's how she's going to do this. She's going to go to the Dauphin. She's going to present herself to him. She's going to lead the French forces. She's going to relieve the siege of Orleans. And then she's going to march the Armagnac forces to the city of Rams. And um, this city, Rams, it looks like it's spelled Reims. I hate, I hate French pronunciations so much. You know why I hate French pronunciations? I hate them because if you mispronounce something in Spanish, that sounds fine. You're supposed to say taco. You say taco. Well, it's kind of stupid sounding. Whatever. But in French, if you mispronounce anything, you sound so stuck up. You really went for it. You were like, oh, baguette. <laughs> I was trying to sound so fancy saying baguette the way I'm supposed to say it. And then if you get it wrong, it's just like, oh, man, you tried to be fancy and you messed up. I love France. I love French culture. I love their history and everything they've been able to accomplish. But man, the French language vexes me. It vexes me. Uh, so Roms, I guess, is how I'm supposed to pronounce it. Um, and so th this is the ancient city where kings of France are always anointed. 
And so up to this point, the Dauphin has not been able to be anointed in, in Rams in the city. And so in a way he's illegitimate. You know, it's like, if you're American, you, you say that you've been elected president, but you're never able to go to the Capitol and swear on the Bible the way you're supposed to. Um, the, the ceremony hasn't been completed. So for some people, this is a, a real point of contention that yet yeah, this can't be the legitimate King because he's never been to Rams. He's never been anointed. He's never done the stuff you're supposed to do when you become King. So this is her plan. Go to the Dauphin, lead his forces, relieve Orleans, go to Rums. So at first she tries to go to some local officials and they totally blow her off. They're like, okay, crazy 16-year-old girl. No, you cannot go see the, the literal person that we think is the king of France. No. And uh, But then she goes kind of to the peasantry. She goes on a public campaign, starts telling people about her visions and these things that she's seeing and hearing. And so she starts to get a little more popular. Then she gets a meeting with the local duke, again, who's kind of like a governor, the Duke of Lorraine. And so finally she gets referred and she's able to go see the Dauphin. And he and his court inspect her, listen to her, decide we're going to check her out and see if she's legit. And to their surprise, everyone is very impressed by this girl. Her conduct is without fault. She seems to be very pious. She seems to be very polite. She seems to have her wits about her. She speaks lucidly. She has a real plan. She speaks very clearly and very eloquently about these visions she's had and what she's here to do. And she has this very strong conviction that, that she needs to do it. And so people are kind of taken aback by this woman, but but still kind of, I mean, what are you supposed to do? A peasant girl just walked into your court. We're all impressed, but are we really going to do this? Are we really going to do what she says? Are we really going to make a war strategy based on the word of this girl? It's uh, It's kind of a testament to their desperation do they even consider it? And so they go to their court clergy, to, to the priests of the realm, and they say, how do we know if this girl's real or not? How do we know if she's really sent from God? And they think about it, they test her, and they say, okay, we, we have some tests for her. The first is we need to test her spiritual integrity. So they ask her questions about her belief. Does she know the important prayers? Um, does she believe in the Catholic Church? And they do this kind of mini inquisition and she passes with flying colors. They say, okay, we need to do a physical inspection. So they have some women physically inspect her to make sure that she is a virgin. doesn't sound like a good time, but she is, she passes that test as well. And they say, okay, well, she needs to pass one more test, which is this. We essentially just need to test the stuff she's saying, give her a mission. And if she completes it, if she's able to do what she says needs to be done, then I guess she's legit. And so they say, okay, we're going to give this, this woman, the task of, of relieving the siege of Orleans. Well, no one else has been able to do it. We'll give her a go. Why not? And so now, against all odds, this woman, Joan, is given a suit of armor. She's given a horse. She's given a sword. She also gives herself a nickname. She starts to call herself the maid. Now, the maid is an interesting nickname because it essentially means the virgin. It doesn't actually mean virgin because virgin means virgin. But the maid is a young woman of a certain age who has hit puberty. So she is an adult, but she's not yet married. So she's a virgin, but she's a virgin of a, of a certain age, right? The, the age that the Joan is, but by calling herself the maid, she's definitely invoking the image, the idea of the Virgin Mary. She's making an implicit connection an implicit comparison between herself and the Virgin Mary. And so when people hear this, this is like this very prophetic title. She, she, she's the maid. I mean, it's great branding, if nothing else. She starts to dress like a man. She cuts her hair short like a man, so she will look more like a soldier. She comes up with her own flag that says Jesus Mary on it uh, and, and has a cross on it and other things. 
to, to signify that she's on this holy mission. And the first thing she does is she sends a letter to the King of England. And this is what it says. It starts by saying, Jesus, Mary, it's invoking their names because that's who she represents. And it says, King of England, render account to the King of heaven of your royal blood. Return the keys of all the good cities, which you have seized to the maid. She is sent by God to reclaim the royal blood and is fully prepared to make peace if you will give her satisfaction. That is, you must render justice and pay back all that you have taken. King of England, if you do not do these things, I am the commander of the military. I am the chef de guerre. I am, I am the commander in chief, which is amazing. She's already claiming this. And in whatever place I shall find your men in France, I will make them flee the country, whether they wish to or not. And if they will not obey the maid, I will have them all killed. She comes sent by the king of heaven, body for body, to take you out of France. And the maid promises and certifies to you that if you do not leave France, she and her troops will raise a mighty outcry has not been heard in France in a thousand years. And believe that the king of heaven has sent her so much power that you will not be able to harm her or her brave army. To you, archers, noble companions in arms, and all people who are before Orleans, I say to you in God's name, go home to your own country. If you do not do so, beware of the maid and of the damages you will suffer. Do not attempt to remain, for you have no rights in France from God, the King of Heaven, and the Son of the Virgin Mary. It is Charles, the rightful heir, to whom God has given France, who will shortly enter Paris in a grand company. If you do not believe the news written of God and the maid, then in whatever place we may find you, we will soon see who has the better right, God or you. Uh, and then she addresses herself to the actual commander um, in France. She says, Duke of Bedford, who call yourself regent of France for the King of England. The maid asks you not to make her destroy you. If you do not render her satisfaction, she and the French will perform the greatest feat ever done in the name of Christianity. <laughs> I mean, wow. You really have to respect the audacity of a 16-year-old girl to write the King of England and his regent uh, like the most powerful force in the world, maybe not quite, maybe, you know, there's the Holy Roman empire. They're probably more powerful, but you know, one of the most powerful people in the world, certainly one of the three or four most powerful people in Europe to write him and say, Hey, beat it out of France. Or I, the maid, I'm going to kill you, kill your men, kick you out of France. Amazing. Uh, I mean, and of course this makes ripples. This makes waves. Uh, the English are outraged. Um, and everyone in France, whether they side with the Armagnacs or whether they side with the Burgundians is at the very least very intrigued by this. They want to see what comes of it. So she goes to relieve the siege of Orleans and she is paired with, uh, as a general, the bastard of Orleans. So remember, this is the guy who, um, is the younger brother of the Duke of Orleans. So this is his hometown. And, uh, since the Duke of Orleans is still imprisoned, he has sort of claimed to be the commander of this area. And they form a kind of funny relationship. The Bastard of Orleans is a commander's commander. He's fought in battles all his life. And so he's all about using strategy and being smart about how they attack. He's just had this sort of embarrassing defeat at the Battle of the Herrings. And Joan has one move in her playbook. And that move is attack head on and let God win the victory for us. And so they, and so they're constantly sort of bargaining of Joan is saying, okay, great, let's attack. And the bastard of Orleans saying, okay, well, um, what if we instead, you know, waited for some reinforcements and, uh, they have this kind of push pull. So 
at first they head to Orleans and they bring all these supplies. The English aren't able to cut them off. So they march into the city uh, with these supplies. And then the bastard of Orleans leaves with all his men. He leaves and Joan of Arc is, is left in Orleans with these supplies and she's outraged. They, they say they're going to come back later uh, with, with even more supplies and, and better supplies so that they can have better attack. And she's like, no, God has promised us we're going to win. We should attack now. And so she's able to exert some pressure. The men come back in relatively short order. And so she gets her, her assault that she wants. The English are not just kind of set up in camps, but they've actually made fortifications around the city of Orleans. And there are a number of different forts. And so the first thing they do is assault one of these kind of smaller fortified positions. And Joan is in her gleaming armor. She has her white banner. She doesn't actually carry her weapon into battle and she doesn't actually fight. She never kills a person in her life, but she marches at the front and encourages her men on and says, go attack, attack, attack. God is with us. God will give us victory. And they win this first little victory. It's just one of these little mini forts around the city of Orleans but it's the first French victory in a long time. And the people of Orleans have just watched this 16 year old peasant girl lead the French to their first victory in forever. And so there's this incredible enthusiasm and there's enthusiasm in the men too. And so uh, they start to get some momentum. So then they attack another one of these little forts and they're able to overtake it as well. And so now there is a big fort, uh, the, the kind of main English fortification and they have archers, they have lots of men, they have, you know, decently high walls. And so, you know, this one, you can't just take head on, but, uh, Joan says, no, here we go. Full on frontal attack on this fort. Let's go. And in this attack, uh, she's injured. She gets struck with an arrow between her neck and her shoulder and she gets it treated and she says, no, it's just a flesh wound. And so she goes right back up to the front lines and says, keep going, keep going. And this really excites the men to see Joan who just had an arrow in her shoulder, comes back and is cheering us on again. And so they push forward again and they take this big fort. And the next day, all the English troops who are, are left kind of line up to see what'll happen. The French bring out their, their forces and uh, the English chicken out and leave. And so in a matter of just a few days, this 16 year old girl, Joan from who knows where little town in the middle of nowhere, is able to do what all the knights and commanders in Armagnac, France had not been able to do. She had relieved this threat and for the moment squashed the existential threat that the English had posed to Armagnac, France. To me, when I look at kind of what happens at the siege of Orleans, it shows the power of small victories when you have a big vision. So when you have a big vision, small victories can take on prophetic overtones. You know, I remember that when I started my podcast, I really believed, I really believed that it could be one of the biggest podcasts in the world. I don't know why. I just believed in myself. I believed that it had the power to be this. And so when I saw myself go from 100 listeners to 200 listeners, that's nothing. That's a small victory. And yet when you have that big belief, all of a sudden it's like, look, it's happening, right? The thing I said was going to happen is happening. And so when you don't have that big vision, then a little victory is just a little victory. It's a hundred listeners. Who cares? But when you do have that big vision, it's like, mm, we doubled the number of listeners that we, that we had in the first three months. And so I do think it's because Joan was telling everyone, we are going to completely eject the English from France. We're going to take the Dauphin to Roms. We're going to anoint him 
uh, and we're going to go to Paris. She had this big vision. And so when she starts winning these first little victories, she starts getting this momentum. People start getting behind her. And that's what's letting her now have big victories. So now after this victory at Orleans, now the Armagnac priests say, okay, well, we tested her spiritual knowledge. Check. We tested her virginity. Check. And we gave her a mission and she completed it. Guess what? This, this girl is really sent by God. Congrats. And, and so now she's having this magical effect. People want to see her. People want to be by her. You know, there's this one night guy to Laval who says, it seemed to me a gift from heaven that she was there and that I was seeing her and hearing her. And so she has this like talismanic effect. People just want to be around her. And one of the effects that this has, you know, so for example, I told you that there had been these internal fractures, these internal conflicts within the camp of the Armagnacs. Well, there's this guy uh, named the Count of Richemont, and he had kind of been on the outs. And so they didn't want him marching with the army. He didn't really want to march with everyone else because they, you know, they had this fractious relationship. He hears about all this and he comes and joins up with everyone else. And they're like, all right, you can come. <laughs> we're, we're all in a line. We're all going in the same direction. We're all rowing in the same direction. We all know what we're doing. We can put aside our petty differences now. And so this momentum starts to build. They need to take a few cities on the way to Roms that are stand between them and, and this, this city that they're hoping to go to. And so on the first one, once again, they show up to the fortifications. Joan says, guess what? Frontal assault. We're going to take it right now. They go once again, a stone is thrown at her, hits her in the head, knocks her out. She gets up a minute later and says, I'm good. And she shouts to her men, keep going. And they keep going with the frontal assault. And once again, they take another city. So they keep going, they take a couple more cities, and then the English army finally catches up to them at a place called Pate. And so there's gonna be this battle, the English and the French line up, and the English are trying to do kind of the same thing that they did at Agincourt. So they send some archers into the woods, uh, kind of to the side of the battle, and they are going to ambush the French as they, as they come to attack the English and after they get ambushed by all these archers, then the English will charge and they'll knock them back and kill them. But as these ambushers are getting set, a stag, a male deer, pops out of the middle of nowhere and it scares some English archers. Some of them let out a call and it notifies the French to their position. So these uh, French knights immediately charge these English archers who have to turn and run because uh, they didn't have the element of surprise that they were hoping for. And this battle of Pate uh, turns into a rout the French are overwhelmingly victorious. They kill a bunch of Englishmen and they suffer almost no casualties. And this is the first major kind of open field battle victory that the French have had in a long time. One of the Burgundians who's with the English, they were, they were their allies. One of the Burgundians, a knight says, quote, by the renown of Joan, the maid, the hearts of the English were greatly changed and weakened. And they saw as it seemed to them that fortune was turning her wheel harshly against them. So once again, there's this idea of momentum. There's this idea that the English had this just feeling of victory, that things were always going their way. And now for the first time, things are not going their way. Things are going the opposite way. As he said, I love that. I love that saying. Fortune was turning her wheel harshly against them. And she's providing consensus of leadership. Even though all the decisions aren't being made by Joan, in fact, most of the decisions are not being made by Joan, they're sort of mediated by her, right? She agrees on all of them. And the fact that Joan is behind whatever is decided gets everyone else on board. And the discussion is over once, once Joan is on board. She knows that she's not an experienced commander. She recognizes her limits a little bit. But at the same time, she's also always pushing these generals who are more experienced to say, guys, 
we always attack. We have the help of God on our side. And so we go forward and we straightforwardly are marching towards Roms to, to anoint this king. And, and one example of how she does this kind of gets consensus is, you know, some after this victory, some people are saying, well, great, we already have the English on the run. Let's just go attack them. Well, let's go attack their headquarters and uh, kick them out of France entirely. And she says, no, the important thing is that we're marching to Roms. We are getting Charles, the Dauphin, to be anointed because that's how things are supposed to, that's what God wants. You're supposed to be the anointed king. And, and then we're going to kick the English out of France. And so everyone agrees to that. Everyone goes along with her plan. As they get closer to Roms, some of the cities along the way start surrendering with very little pretext of opposition. The last city before they get there is Troyes, and it is a pretty big city. And she writes them a fiery letter and says, you know, you, same thing she kind of said to King of England, better surrender now. We have the true born king of France, yada, yada, yada. And Troyes turns them down. Troyes says, uh, no, we're not surrendering to you. And so the generals kind of decide, okay, well, we don't know. This is actually like a pretty big city. And we don't know that we actually have the manpower to, to take it. And Joan says, stop being idiots. We're going to keep doing what we've been doing. You guys still don't get it. God is on our side. We're going to assault Troy's. We're going to climb the walls and we're going to win as God intends. And then we're going to Roms and we're going to crown Charles. This is what we've been doing the entire time. And we're not going to stop now. And so they prepare for this great assault and they don't even have to do it. When, uh, when the citizens of Troy's see that the Armagnacs are very serious about this, that they really are going to assault them. They say, okay, a little, little too rich for our blood. And they surrender. After Troy's surrenders, they write to the city of Rams and they say, Hey guys, we surrendered. We think you should probably do the same. And, uh, and so the city of Rams says, okay, fair deal. And so they also surrender. They open the gates and the Armagnacs are able to enter the city. The environment is kinetic, as they might say in military terms, they can't just hang around for forever. So they have to arrange this anointing ceremony, uh, relatively quickly. They do. And so the king rides into the cathedral. Uh, they literally open the doors and he, he, he takes his horse into the cathedral in his armor and everything. He gets off and he is anointed by the archbishop there. And as he is anointed, who is standing right next to him? But Joan, Joan La Pucelle, Joan the mate, Joan the, the messenger from God standing there in her armor, holding her white banner. It, it's just amazing. You know, this has been a peasant girl a year ago, less than a year ago. She was just some girl from nowhere. And here she is standing next to the, the man who's being anointed, the King of France. And, and she's the one who's right there because it's her initiative that made this happen. The archbishop says his prayers, he burns incense, and then he anoints the Dauphin with holy oil. He touches his breasts, his shoulders, his arms, and then finally his head. And when he touches his head, Everyone in the cathedral shouts, Noel. Afterward, Joan kneels at the feet of Charles and says, Noble King, God's will is done. And she begins to weep uncontrollably. She had done it. She had carried out her mission exactly as the voices had told her to. And it went exactly how she thought it would. Things have completely turned now. Um, people are now looking for excuses to side with the Armagnacs if they can. They've got this amazing woman La Pucelle, the maid, who, who looks like a messenger from God. He's been anointed. They've won a few battles. Uh, everyone wants to, to be on board. The Duke of Burgundy, 
is even ambivalent for a number of reasons. There's some complications with the English and, and things are turning against him. And so he's starting to send out feelers of, guys, can we have some maybe peace treaties uh, between us? Maybe a little bit of ceasefire. We, we agree not to fight each other on, on our own lands. We'll only fight each other on the lands that are controlled by, by English France, that kind of thing. So it's been four months. In four months, Charles has gone from you know, ready to flee Bourges and go further south and basically abandoning France. And then four months later, he's being anointed. Um, he's looking like uh, victory is en route. And they turn from the city of Reims, where he has just been anointed, and they start marching toward Paris. Now, at this time, it seems to me that the voices sort of abandon Joan. They're no longer giving her as clear of instructions. At this time, she starts describing it more as she's coming to them with questions and seeking their approval. She's kind of coming with her own plans. There isn't the same very clear mission that she had before. Before, it was go to Orleans, relieve the siege, and then go and anoint the king. Now, there's just more, the more nebulous, kick the English out of France. But, but there's not exactly as clear of a picture of how to do this. So they go to Paris. The English forces and the Armagnac forces have sort of a showdown, but no one wants to risk a big battle. So the English kind of just go back north into Normandy and the French surround Paris. Now, Joan has been able to lead all these frontal assaults and just by sheer force of will take all of these cities. But Paris is different. Paris is the most fortified city in Western Europe. It has very strong walls. It has natural defenses. It's got this river, much of the of the key part of the city is an island in the middle of the Seine River. So it, it's a very different environment, but Joan doesn't know different environments. She doesn't know different tactics. And so she says, uh, no, we're, we're leading a frontal assault again. The Dauphin and all of his commanders think this is not a good idea, but she goes ahead with it anyway. So they come up to the walls and uh, she's leading this attack. And as they come up to the as they get right to the foot of the wall, she yells, surrender to us quickly in the name of Jesus. For if you do not surrender before nightfall, we will come in there by force, whether you like it or not, and you'll all be put to death. And there's a long silence. And then someone yells, shall we, you bloody tart? And then a crossbow bolt comes flying through the air and rips through her thigh. And um, they make a kind of a show of trying to assault the walls, uh, but it fails very easily. And they drag Joan away from the walls with this arrow through her thigh and she's bleeding profusely. And even as she's bleeding and she's literally being carried away by her own men away from the walls, she's saying the entire time, no, 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 Paris can be taken. You must assault, but no one listens to her and people, and they retreat from the walls of Paris. Uh, the Duke of Bedford soon returns to Paris with more troops. And so the, uh, the French, the Armagnacs, uh, return to Borges to their capital, despite Joan's complaints. And now, it's it's interesting. She has given the French, the Armagnacs, new hope. She has completely turned the tide of the war. They were on their last breath. They they really were about to, to be knocked out. And now things are back to even. But she has lost one battle. Or not even lost a battle, but she has failed to take one city. And her spell is kind of broken for some reason after this. She's uh, She's now a liability. She's not undefeated. She's not undefeatable. She's not invincible anymore. And so the Armagnacs kind of have to decide what to do with her. And they decide, all right, we're going to kind of put her in some sideshows. 
uh, send her to some unimportant places where she can't make any trouble and she can stop trying to boss us around and tell us what to do. So she goes and relieves a few sieges and takes a few towns with her same tactics. And then there is a Armagnac city that is being besieged by Burgundians. And she comes and does her normal thing. She says, they're the Burgundians. They're going to take the city charge and they make a frontal assault. Unbeknownst to her, there were some hidden English forces that had been out of sight. And once they charge and are engaged with the Burgundians, the English come from behind and begin to surround them. And others retreat and try to escape this encircling movement by the English. But she does not retreat. She won't retreat. She says, keep pushing forward. We're going to win anyway. And uh, eventually she's abandoned by almost everyone in her army. And eventually she's pulled off her horse and she's captured. Now, the Dauphin and all the Armagnacs, they have the position that this woman was sent by God, but the reason she got captured by the English was she got a little too big for her britches. She stopped listening to good advice. She got too willful. She was trying to dictate to the man who had now been anointed the King of France, to the Dauphin. And that's why she was captured. She fell from God's grace because she was too headstrong. And so they kind of have hung her out to dry. They say, yeah, she was, she was sent by God, but she's not anymore. And so the Burgundians are actually the ones who capture her and they hand her over. They actually don't hand her over. They sell her to the English. They were always looking for a deal. And so she's captured by the English. And this is really, I think it must've been a crisis for, of faith for her. She, she can't believe that her plan is not going exactly how she thought it would. So she's moved a couple times from castle to castle to different prisons. And at one of these, she tries to jump out the window. She said she wasn't trying to kill herself. She was trying to escape, but she knew that there was a, a chance that she would die and didn't care. She would rather die than be imprisoned by the English any longer. But she doesn't escape. She just injures herself, probably breaks a leg. And so now she's put under more strict scrutiny. And so the Burgundians and the English bring in a bunch of priests to conduct a trial to find out if she really was sent by God. And of course, if these priests are being brought in by the English and Burgundians, you might imagine that they have a, a certain viewpoint that they're bringing into the matter. And so this trial consists of, of bringing Joan the maid into a, a courtroom for basically a full day, every day, for weeks, and examining her and cross-examining her day after day, trying to trip her up, trying to catch her in contradictions. And their hope is that they will be able to lay out a case of why she is a false prophet and heretical, and why the anointing of, of King Charles that she was able to accomplish is illegitimate because it was caused by this witch, this horrible woman. And more than that, their hope is not only that they can prove it, you know, if they prove that, then they can burn her at the stake as a, as a witch. But they don't want to burn her at the stake, frankly. What they want is for her to renounce her visions and miracles and prophecies and say, I was wrong. Because then... They can say to King Charles, look, even the person who got you anointed is saying it's not legitimate. Everyone knows you're not the real king, right? So they are both trying to trip her up, catch her in lies, prove that she's this horrible woman, but also convince her to renounce what she has been saying. Renounce that she has seen visions, renounce that she has heard the voices of these saints. So they conduct this long and very lawyerly cross-examination. They keep very detailed records. Uh, so you can read it. You can read everything that happened. And it's amazing, actually, because you can get this glimpse at the real Joan. And in fact, that's one of the things I love most about this. And there's this book. It's called Joan of Arc by Herself and Her Witnesses that brings in 
a lot of the testimony of Joan and also the testimony of, of people who knew her from her time in Domremy and after. And it's, it's a great book. I recommend it. Thank you to my cousin Mackie who, uh, who gave it to me and uh, kind of sent me on this journey as well of, of thinking and wanting to, to research and, and write about Joan of Arc. So um, as you read these transcripts of these cross-examinations and how Joan responds to them, she comes across as extremely intelligent, lucid, clever, defiant, and full of conviction, full of true belief in what she has seen and heard. She seemed in control, even though she is imprisoned, she's surrounded by all these men who are hostile to her, who are trying to get her killed. She'll often answer, I answer that elsewhere. You know, I'll ask her a question. I already told you that. Uh, Spare me that and pass the question, she would often say. On the second day of questioning, they tell her to, uh, on the first day, they ask her to take an oath of integrity, an oath of honesty that she'll tell the truth takes the oath. The second day they come to her and say, all right, I want you to take the oath again uh, that you'll be honest. And she says, quote, I took an oath for you yesterday. That should be quite enough for you. They ask her again. And she says, you burden me too much. So she's very much like, it, it does frankly remind me of, um, of Jesus in front of Pilate. You know, she's not answering when she doesn't want to answer. She's very much in control of the situation and she's full of conviction. Another time they ask her if the people of Dom Remy, where she's from, were Armagnacs or Burgundians. And she responded, I knew only of one Burgundian there, and I could have wished his head cut off. However, only if it pleased God. And so she had many funny and, uh, and clever answers. She even challenged her accusers. At one point, she told the bishop who was questioning her, you say that you are my judge. Take care of what you do, for in truth, I am sent by God, and you put yourself in great danger. The fact that the trial went on for 16 days is both evidence of the thoroughness of the prosecution, that they wanted to make sure that they were laying out a solid case, but it's also evidence of the deafness of her answers, that it took them so long to get the answers that they were looking for because she was she was smart in the way that, that she was answering. She said that the voices, and again, these, these are the voices in her head of St. Catherine, St. Margaret, and St. Michael, that the voices she claimed told her to answer with boldness and that everything would be okay. But in the end, how could it be okay? This was not a court in any real sense. It wasn't objective. There was no question in their head of what the outcome might be. This court was convened specifically to convict her. The outcome was a foregone conclusion. And convict her they did. They convicted her of, well, let me just read from, from the pronouncement. <clears throat> it's quite the rap sheet. Quote, let her be pronounced and declared a sorcerer, a soothsayer, diviner, false prophetess, invoker and conjurer of evil spirits, superstitious, engaged in and practicing the magic arts, evil thinking in and about our Catholic faith, schismatic, wavering, and inconstant in the articles of the faith, sacrilegious, idolatrous, apostate from the faith, evil speaking and evil doing, blaspheming God and his saying, scandalous, seditious, a disturber of peace and an obstacle to it, inciting wars, cruelly thirsting for human blood and encouraging its shedding, unholy, forsaking the decent and reserve of her sex, a heretic, or at least vehemently suspected, of heresy. Wow. Again, that is quite the accusation. So they start off with 70 accusations in total, actually. And in the end, they whittle it down to 12 official accusations that they think that they can really get her on. And so the, the examination, the, the questioning comes to an end and they read her these 12 accusations and they tell her if she's convicted that she will be burned at the stake. And she says, quote, 
I will say nothing more to you about this. And if I saw the fire, I would say all that I am saying to you now and would not act differently. Again, they don't want to burn her, actually. The best case scenario is that she recants. And so the next day they bring her into court and they have torturers standing there with their implements. They've got their tongs and their blades and their scalpels and their knives. They tell her, you know, we might torture you for your own good, because if by doing that, we can get you to recant, it might save your soul. And she says, quote, in truth, if you were to have me torn limb from limb and my soul separated from my body, I still won't tell you anything more. And if I did tell you anything else about this afterwards, I would always say that you had made me say it by force. Her answer is so powerful that they put the implements away and decide not to torture her. But they do decide that there's nothing that can be done with her. I guess we're just going to have to burn her. And so the next day they take her out to the town square where there was a stake put in the ground, surrounded by wood. And they take her to a scaffold, put her on top of it, and they read her her sentence. She was to be burned. She looks around and she's searching. The voices said she would be okay. And she thought that she would be saved somehow. But as she looked around, she could see that no salvation was coming. So as the final moment approached, for the first time, she vacillates, she equivocates. She says that she wants the Pope to hear her trial. If the Pope himself says that she is schismatic, she's all these things, then she'll believe him. And the English say, sorry, girl, that's not going to happen. You're not going to have your trial heard by the Pope, but you can recant your testimony here and now. We, in fact, we've got the, the documentation all drawn up. All you have to do is sign here. She looks around and she's hoping. She's hoping for her promised salvation that the voices told her was coming, but it doesn't come. And finally, she says, you know, I always just wanted to be a good Catholic girl. And, and I guess I'm willing to obey the church and her judges. And so she, she signs this letter. And she's taken back to her prison cell. Her men's clothes are taken from her and she's given um, some rough women's clothes. Her head is shaved and she's told that she's going to spend the rest of her life in prison, praying for forgiveness for her many crimes. And that might have been how the story ended, but it's not. Because the next day, when her guards come to see her, Joan is back in her men's clothes. And that had been one of the points of the prosecution. One of the things that made them so sure that she was evil was that she insisted on wearing men's clothes. And so they say, you know, why are you back in your men's clothes? One of the conditions of your forgiveness was that you would continue to wear women's clothes. And she has all these answers where she had been very lucid and, uh, and very clear before. Now she's, she's jumbled. She's confused. She says, men were looking at me and, and, and I didn't like the way they were looking at me in women's clothes. Uh, I, I like these clothes better anyway. And you told me that I could attend mass. And, and, and I haven't been able to attend mass. And I hadn't understood my oath when I took it. It's a stark contradiction from the testimony she'd given earlier. And the bishop hears this. And uh, he looks at her and says, you've been hearing voices again, haven't you? And she says, yes. She says the voices have told her that she had damned her soul to save her life. They said she should have spoken boldly on the platform and died if she had to. They were angry telling her that if she denied that God had sent her, she'd be damned because she truly had been sent by God and she knew it. And so she recants her retraction that she had signed only one day previously. And that's it. That's the final straw. And so they tell her it's over. Um, you're dead. There's no way to save your life now. You're going to be killed. But 
there is still one more opportunity to save your soul. If you tell us the truth about all this um, before, before your death, we're going to kill you this very day. And she says she can't. Um, she, she can't deny that she has seen visions and heard voices and says, whether they are good or evil spirits, they appeared to me. So she was then taken again to the public square. She was tied to the pyre. People could see her lips moving as she prayed ceaselessly in her last remaining moments. Her last words were, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then the flames consumed her. And so ended the remarkable life of Joan, Joan the maid. She was 19 years old. Uh, next episode, we will talk about what happened after all this with the war, uh, what her overall impact and legacy was, the attributes that made her great. But just briefly, before I end here, I want to explain what I think was going on here because it can seem very confusing. Because um, there's this question, how do you explain these visions and voices? How do you explain her behavior here at the end? How do you explain her unwillingness to deny all this stuff? I mean, you know, we live in a very cynical age. And so I think obviously the default assumption is angels were not constantly appearing to her and telling her what to do. So what was really happening? And it's interesting. I heard a podcast a few months ago. Um, it's called the Martyr Made Podcast. And there was an episode on auditory hallucinations. And these are people hearing voices. And um, in this podcast, the Martyr Made Podcast, they went through this Princeton study that was done on people who experienced auditory hallucinations, most of whom, but not all of whom, are schizophrenic. And they talked about what some of the common symptoms were, what, what people experienced when they experienced these, these hallucinations, when they heard these voices. And as I listened to this podcast, every single thing that was common for these people is exactly what happened to Joan. So for almost all of them, it started in adolescence that they heard voices for the first time. The first time they heard the voices, they were surprised. They thought it was a literal voice from outside their body. They heard them from different directions, but the majority of people heard the voices behind themselves as Joan did. It usually started with only one voice, but over 80% of them eventually ended up hearing multiple voices and three was a very common number. Now we often associate this with schizophrenia. We often associate this with hostile or malevolent voices telling people to do horrible, evil things. Um, sometimes there are a couple of cases of mass shooters who, who said that they heard voices and the voices told them to do it. Uh, but that's not always the case. There are many people who experience auditory hallucinations who are not schizophrenic, who, who are able to function and don't do evil things. And the voices don't tell them to do bad or evil things. And to me, that seems to be the case here. This, this is what we're looking at. And I am um, a person of faith. I'm a religious man. Even more, I would say I'm, I'm sort of, I don't know. Uh, mystical is a weird word. Uh, I'm just very open to different people's experiences and very open to there being more than what we understand with our limited human understanding. Science has progressed an, an astonishing amount in the time that humans have been on the earth. But the amount that we do not know outweighs the amount that we do know an infinite amount. It's more than a million to one, what we don't know to what we do know. And so when I see an experience like this, where Joan is, I think, obviously having auditory hallucinations, I don't count out the idea that it could be more than that as well. 
to me, it's not a binary. It's not either angels or hallucinations. I think it could be both or neither or something else. I, I, I don't know. But I do think that the experience of auditory hallucinations um, explains exactly what Joan was going through. And that is a way to understand it. And whether they were hallucinations or angels or both, I strongly believe that Joan really did hear voices that she believed were external to herself. And she really had followed those voices to the best of her abilities for her entire life. And those voices had led her to accomplish some of the most remarkable things that a human has ever accomplished on this earth. And um, those voices led her to her death. And maybe that was supposed to be what happened because she would live on as a martyr and her example continues to inspire to, to the current day. Joan of Arc lived 19 short years, but in that time, she achieved the impossible. Okay, that's it. Um, Sorry, guys. Sorry to end on a downer. But next time, we'll be a little bit happier, I think, as we talk about her legacy. So until next time, thank you for listening to How to Take Over the World.